There's a deep reverence and respect for the elements of water, sky, and earth, sun and moon, that we'll find when we engage with cultures that have developed in the middle of the ocean, away from the speed of mainland societies. Island wisdom, lessons from Hawaiian culture, our topic here today on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg, Island Wisdom, Lessons from Hawaiian Culture, our topic in this hour with an amazing guest. All that is coming up. This show is brought to you by Equal Exchange, a worker-owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee, tea, chocolate, bananas, and avocados. More on Equal Exchange at equalexchange.coop. That's equalexchange.coop. And by Adderley, offering beautiful and fun clothing for boys and girls that is made entirely from the unused fabric of prominent apparel manufacturers. Each garment reduces our eco-footprint by preventing this fabric from reaching the waste stream. Adderley, making sustainability fashionable and fashion sustainable. For more information, adderley.co. That's U-T-T-E-R-L-Y dot C-O. Also, thank you to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables. Since 1988, Earl's Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, Earl's Organic Produce at earlsorganic.com. And Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry Vineyards, Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com.
And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Island wisdom is our topic in this hour. What we can learn from the culture in this case of Hawaii. And with us now is Kevin Hoke, the CEO and president of the Hawaiian Outrigger Experience and Hawaiian Ocean Sports, who's joining us from Wailuku, Hawaii. Kevin, are you there? Aloha, Aloha, good morning. Aloha, good morning. Wonderful to have you on the line with us. Uh, you are operating an outrigger company on Maui, and I got to spend a week on Maui just a few weeks ago. And what really struck me was your incredibly deeply rooted reverence for Hawaiian culture. It was just such an unexpected A trip where you know you would expect kind of a little bit more of a touristy experience and you made it so real and spiritual how were you taught how did you grow up learning about the culture of of hawaii first of all Helga, i appreciate the uh, the opportunity of being on your uh, show uh, i appreciate you coming out on the canoe and experiencing uh, the hawaiian culture so in, in reference to your uh, your first question at an early age i was blessed We have kupuna, and Hawaiians say kupuna are our elders, our parents, our grandparents, our relatives, close friends. And if you break the word kupuna up into two words, the first two letters are ku. Ku is to stand. The last four letters, puna. Puna is the source. So I had to stand on the source of all these great people that helped shape my life, that helped influenced my experiences. So I was blessed to have kupuna, elders in my life, parents, cousins, aunties, uncles, and close friends. So kapuna, what what really struck me during that trip was like the how you break down language into meaning. And kapuna is a perfect example. When did you really realize as a little boy, what was the moment when, when you got the wisdom, when you made the connection that this understanding and your culture actually mattered to you and was you? Well, uh, personally speaking, I think um, about 10 years ago, I, I really came to the realization and had an epiphany that, you know, I was raised a specific way I was born and raised in Hawaii and had an opportunity to go to college in the mainland in California, and then I lived in Oregon. And it was only after those life experiences that I really began to miss my culture. So I moved back to Maui, and I began to reflect on, on my life experiences. I, my grandmother, uh, Eleanor Hiram Hope, uh, she had a tremendous influence on, on my upbringing, Uh, in establishing cultural values. Yeah, so I had a chance to, to spend a lot of time growing up with great people that helped influence me. Um, my grandmother was uh, one of 12 couple children in the history of Hawaii to learn all the ancient Hawaiian chants, hula, and traditions. So uh, after birth, she was taken to the North Shore of Oahu for the next 13 years of her life. She was raised learning all the ancient Hawaiian chants, school and traditions, yeah. So she was one of 12 by her own self-report and being the last one to have uh, to learn the ancient Hawaiian ways uh, in becoming a master kumuhula. 
my grandmother was recognized by the state as being uh, one of five master kumuhula. So hmm. you know, it taught me a lot about a culture. And Do you have some examples? Like what happened 10 years ago? You, you left the island, actually. In what kind of mindset did you leave? Were you happy to be finally gone and have some experiences of the mainland? Or you spent, what, 10 years or 15 years in Oregon? Uh, what made you leave? You know, I, I, after graduating high school in 1985, I went to college in California, and then I lived in Oregon for 15 years and worked with kids. And, uh, you know, I, I um, began to miss Hawaii and my Hawaiian culture. I mean, I was always uh, connected, but I really missed that physical connectivity. And so I decided to move back to Hawaii uh, about 10 years ago, and... Um, It was then that I realized that, you know, uh, I had an, uh, uh, another purpose in this chapter in my life, and, and that purpose was to, um, to perpetuate the Hawaiian culture through, through surfing and canoeing. And uh, I started uh, Aloha Surf School and Hawaiian Outrigger Experience with the purpose of perpetuating the Hawaiian culture through these activities. So I was blessed to be a part of that and to also perpetuate the Hawaiian culture through the education and understanding of our Hawaiian history. Yeah? And that's why we have you on the show. This is an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg, and we are speaking with Kevin Ho. We'll right back after the break. Stay tuned. This is an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg, and we are speaking with Kevin Hoke, the CEO and president of Hawaiian Outrigger Experience and Hawaiian Ocean Sports. The website is hawaiianoutriggerexperience.com or hawaiianoceansports.com on Maui. Coming back, what did what did you miss specifically, or realizing when you when you had returned? What was missing in your life? What what have you learned in the last 10 years just for you to be on the mainland for that long studying here and and then working as a counselor in Oregon for 15 years and then returning? What did you what did you experience? What did you miss that you realized afterwards maybe even more than when you were living on the mainland? Yeah, good question. Um, I think uh, a sense of, of pride and um, reflecting back on uh, the Hawaiian culture and Hawaiian history and, and, and really uh, researching um, the illegal overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy in 1893, uh, really reflecting on our last reigning queen, Queen Liliokalani, who uh, you know, she was imprisoned in her own palace 
by the, the United States and business people that were interested in uh, taking control over Hawaii. Uh, so in 1893, there was the illegal overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy and illegal occupation of Hawaiian to this day. So that really uh, motivated me personally to, to, to dive into uh, my culture and to evaluate what happened and, most importantly, how I could help perpetuate Kanaka Maoli, the, the Hawaiian culture, yeah? So what are some of those cultural values? The the tour I did with you in the Outrigger was a little over an hour, and it was already packed with navigational references and the sun and the moon. And when when you talk about cultural values, what does it come down to for you? What does Hawaiian or island culture stand for being removed from the mainland, you know, growing up without that speed of consumption, perhaps a much closer relationship to the ocean, to water, to the sky, to the stars. Again, navigation was such a big topic when we went out, but what are some of the examples of cultural values that Hawaiian tradition stands on? Yeah, well, Hawaiians uh, were the pioneers in surfing, right? They introduced surfing to the world. Um, and They uh, were master navigators. Um, Hawaiians have an expression that goes like this, which translates to the canoe is our island or island is our canoe. Yeah? So the Hawaiians use this expression as a metaphor in life, that we are all in this canoe in life together. Yeah, And if you think about it, you're traveling from... Uh, Tahiti to Hawaii and throughout the Polynesian Triangle. Keep in mind that way back when there were no uh, Coast Guard, no lifeguards and military to rescue you. So when you loaded your family up in that ba'a, in that canoe, you were all in a canoe together, yeah? And uh, everyone had, Kuliana had responsibility to paddle, to rig, to fish, to care for one another. Because there was no plan B. Once you got on that canoe, you were all in that canoe in life together, yeah? Life or death uh, um, were basically within your hands. So uh, I appreciate that expression because we are, we're all in this canoe in life together. And uh, on the canoe, you learn some values and principles that uh, permeate the Hawaiian culture, uh, the first of which is malama. Malama means to take care of preserve, to serve with honor. So we always malama each other, take care of each other while we're in the canoe, while we're in life. Uh, we all have kuleana. We all have great responsibility to uh, to be good stewards of our land, uh, to love one another, to, uh, again, to steward our natural resources, to perpetuate the cultures and values, uh, to always Be pono, yeah? To always do what's right. What's morally right, to always have integrity, uh, to live righteously. And uh, I would say, lastly, uh, value that I'm most proud of is to always have aloha for each other, yeah? To always love one another, to care for one another. Uh, most everyone knows aloha to mean hello, goodbye, I love you. But to Hawaiians, uh, to Kanaka Maoli, Aloha had a deeper meaning. 
And uh, to truly understand that deeper meaning, you have to break the word aloha up into two words. The first three letters of aloha are alo, A-L-O. Alo literally in Hawaiian means face-to-face or in the presence of. And then the last two letters of aloha are ha. Ha is your breath of life. So anytime I greet friends, family, we always share our ha, our breath of life. We do that by putting our right hand on each other's shoulder, touching foreheads and noses, and inhaling together to share our breath of life with one another. That's so beautiful. That's Kevin Hoke the CEO and president of Hawaiian Outrigger Experience and Hawaiian Ocean Sports. Again, HawaiianOutriggerExperience.com, HawaiianOceanSports.com, who's joining us today from Maui in this hour of an organic conversation, Island Wisdom, Lessons from Hawaiian Culture. I'm Helge Helberg, and Kevin will take a really quick break, and then we'll be back. I want to talk about the language, what really struck me, even in just that one hour with you in the Outrigger, you were able to show in a way the simplicity of how Hawaiian language is put together by symbols, by representations of exactly what you just said with aloha. It's a construct of two words or two meanings put together. And there there were several others um, from Haleakala, the mountain there, to, to other references. Um, let's dive right back in there after the break. Again, this is an organic conversation. We're right back after the break. Stay tuned. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Our topic in this hour is Island Wisdom Lessons from Hawaiian Culture. We're speaking with Kevin Hoke, the CEO and president of Hawaiian Outrigger Experience and Hawaiian Ocean Sports, who I got to meet on Maui. That's the west side of Maui. Is that correct, Wailea? Uh, it's actually the uh, southwest side of Maui. Okay, not not fully incorrect, but <laughs> southwest yeah. side of Maui, yeah, Wailea Beach. And um, before the break, Kevin, we talked about language, Hawaiian language, so beautiful because it's all spoken in pictures, basically. Do you have a few more examples, like you were just able to explain aloha as the, I'm sharing the breath of life with you? Yeah, um, well, more specifically and focusing on um, you know, Wailea Beach, where we operate, the uh, traditional name of Wailea Beach was known as Honua Ula. Uh, Honua is sacred red earth, Honua Ula. Honua means sacred, Ula is red, sacred red earth. So 
when old Hawaii, they divided their land into Mokuor districts. Maui has 12 districts. The name of that district in Wailea is called Honua Ula, Sacred Red Earth. And then as far as the two, the two volcanoes that encompass Maui, we have Hale Aka La. Hale is house, La is sun. It means house of the rising sun. The other volcano is Hale Mahina. Hale is house, Mahina is moon, house of the moon. And all those landmarks, of course, again, served Hawaiians as they were navigating without any instruments, trips up to 2,000, 2,500 miles to other islands, I learned from you, which is astonishing, really, when you consider 2,500 miles on the open ocean without any kind of sextant or other navigation, even a compass, right? They, they, they didn't use any of those tools. Correct. Um, good point, Naga. So Hawaiians were and still are master navigators. Currently, there is a, a navigation canoe called the Hokulea. Hokulea was built by the Hawaiians in 1976, I believe. And um, the purpose was to was to sail to Tahiti using the ancient art of wayfinding or celestial navigation. As you mentioned earlier, uh, Hawaiians didn't have any modern technology, no compass, GPS, maps, clocks, or sextons. So what they had to use is what's called wayfinding, the celestial navigation, the star as well map in heaven, yeah? So uh, they'd memorized 220 stars in traveling from Hawaii to Tahiti. Uh, most importantly, they used the rising and setting points of the sun. We know that the sun always rises in the east and sets in the west. Hawaiians say there are 32 houses on the horizon in which the sun, moon, and stars end up into every day and every night. But the thing is, every day and night, that uh, that angle is different. Yeah. So think about it. You have to memorize 220 stars, uh, which house they land into every day and night, 365 days out of, out of the year. A very complex form of navigation. Um, the Hawaiians also use the wind. Yeah, the prevailing wind is east northeast. They say you can blindfold the master navigator. I believe today there are five. They're called pole, P-W-O, and you can blindfold the master navigator, put him out on the canoe, and he'll tell you where north, south, east, and west is just by feeling the waves hit the canoe and the wind against his body. They <laughs> uh, also use birds, two types of birds. The no'il goes out at sunrise, leaves the island, goes out 40 miles, feeds, returns back to the land at sunset. The manu'oku leaves the island in the morning at sunrise, goes out 120 miles, feeds, returns back to the land at sunset. So the Hawaiians are smart. They just look for these birds in the evening, follow them in the direction that they're going, knowing that depending on which bird they saw, they were zero to 120 miles away from an island. Just follow the birds at sunset. They'll take you right back to the island. Yeah. The last thing they look for is uh, over all these islands are these cotton ballast and clouds. Uh, they only form over islands because of the curvature of the earth. You may not always see the island from a great distance, but you can almost always see the clouds. So you look for those cotton ballast and clouds. So, so currently, uh, Hokulea, uh, about a year ago, um, launched launched this voyage from from the big island to Tahiti, Tahiti, 
to New Zealand, New Zealand to Australia, Australia to Africa, Africa to Brazil, Brazil to the Virgin Islands, the Virgin Islands to Cuba, Cuba to Florida, and just last week, Hokulea landed in New York. So within the last year, Hokulea has traveled 23,000 miles over the next two and a half to three years. Hokulea is going to travel to 20 different countries to preach this message of Malama Honua, which means to take care of this earth. So that integration of using all these existing truths, right, the birds and the clouds, like that that embedded nature within the culture and within really survival, it was not just something to be honored for its beauty, but for sheer survival and navigation and exploration. How do you, when, when you come in touch with tourists who spend, you know, an hour or two hours with you, how are you able to communicate those values to to people who, who visit Wailea Beach or who come to your business and want to have an outrigger experience? We, we always have a positive experience for people that come on the canoe because, you know, I, I think uh, the canoe and surfing, they reinforce some universal principles of connectivity and a relationship, yeah? And surfing and canoeing encompass and reinforce these principles. For one thing, uh, the same percentage of salt exists in the ocean as in the human body, yeah? Maybe that's why we have this desire to go to the ocean, mm -hmm. yeah? And if you look at it, the ocean and canoes all connect us geographically, yeah? No matter the distance, the ocean always connects us. We can always travel by canoe. And um, you know, while we're in the canoe, we're all one ohana, one family, yeah? Each person is responsible for the other, yeah? Remember, there are no Coast Guard, lifeguards, or military, you know? All you have are yourselves that help keep you safe. So you, you personally doing tours with people literally every day of the week and knowing there was this overthrow of the American government at the turn of the century, 1800-1900, and knowing that some of these beaches were only reserved for kings and are now open for, you know, hotels. And how do you stay motivated? How do you not get bitter? What's your secret? Good question. Good question, Mother. You know, um, we'll have to look at our, our last reigning queen, Queen Lila Polani. Uh, she was imprisoned in her own palace in 1893. And, and if you could just um, think about that for a moment. She was imprisoned in her own palace, and she uh, dictated to her people, yeah, to to get rid of the opala, the rubbish out of your heart, and to uh, demonstrate to the world your aloha, and even to have aloha for, for people that were keeping her captive, yeah. So that in itself is motivation to me that you know my last reigning queen had aloha for people that did her wrong. And I have a kuleana, great responsibility responsibility to the world to share that aloha. So that's a, a prime uh, motivating factor for myself um, to follow what uh, my last reigning queen instructed, to love one another. 
And how do you remind yourself going to work every day to, or is that at this point, 10 years after returning from the mainland, is that in every gene of your body? Or do you have a practice to, or is that the moment you walk onto the beach and blow that muscle, blow the, the conch shell? What is, what's, the, what's, your, what's your practice to stay in that yeah. aloha spirit? Yeah, my personal practice is, is always to wake in the morning and always mahalo akua. So you always give thanks and praise to God for allowing me to, to be in Hawaii and to be in this, this, uh, in this special place and to, to always acknowledge Him and to know that you know, I have a, an impact on other people and, and, and to demonstrate to the world aloha, love. And you certainly do. That's Kevin Hoke, the CEO and president of Hawaiian Outrigger Experience and Hawaiian Ocean Sports on Maui on the southwest shore in Wailea Beach. Let's talk about that. We're almost out of time, but I do want to get into the reaction you create from guests. Yes, you get to do this. And I believe it is really well received, at least our Outrigger tour Uh, was amazing and people were very much touched. We paddled out, we saw a bunch of honus, of turtles. Um, what are the reactions you get from guests? It inspired me to invite you to be part of the show, which um, I would think doesn't happen every week, but how do you feel people who are on vacation, um, how are they open to consider these deeply spiritual and important reminders to live consciously? Mm, good question. Um, like I said, the, the results are always positive, and I think um, people have a positive experience because, one, they're getting in, into a canoe, and they're learning about the history of Hawaii. Uh, they get to physically paddle a canoe, the same type of canoe that uh, the Hawaiians use in paddling throughout the Polynesian Triangle. You know, they're working together. They're practicing principles of lokahi, or unity, you know? We get to see honu, turtles. Um, during whale season, we get to see uh, the humpback whales or pohola. We just get to be a part of nature. And there's something about being in the ocean that's um, liberating. And just uh, working together and paddling a canoe is something of beauty. And each one of us is reliant on the other to make sure that the canoe pulls forward We're all in unison. Uh, I teach traditional Hawaiian chants, yeah, that uh, allow us to work together, to bond together, to connect with each other, all in the same canoe. I think all those factors, and just being out on the ocean, seeing how beautiful Maui is, uh, seeing all the islands uh, surrounding Maui, Lanai, Ho'olawe, Molokini, You have Haleakala, House of the Rising Sun, 10,023 feet as your background. Just the overall beauty of, of Maui in general. All create this positive experience. What do you think people take home as the, what's the most important message? Um, this is kind of your chance to speak to our entire audience, which is listening in from 135 countries to an organic conversation. If you had to distill it, I know family comes up a lot, or it seems like the Hawaiian culture is almost entirely based on family. That's where it starts. Um, a reverence for the elders, 
uh, for traditions, for cultures, and then being in service of. But I want to ask you, if you had one distilled message for the world or your guests to convey, what would be the most important one? Again, I have to go back to Aloha because it, it encompasses uh, so many things, love, affection, compassion, mercy, sympathy, kindness, and showing kindness, um, sharing your breath of life with one another uh, upon every interaction. So I would say always aloha. And then we we did learn this amazing little chant on the boat. Uh, would you would you be able to do that for our audience? Sure. <laughs> Thank you. So it was traditional that any time <clears throat> you enter the mountain or the ocean, you offer up an oli chant. It's asking permission for us to enter the water. Yeah, um, and it's called ehomai. It's also asking for protection and asking that all the people of the ocean, yeah, because 75% of the world is filled with water, Hawaiians say, all the people of the ocean, they're asking them to share their hidden knowledge with us. So yeah, um, this is called Ihomai, and it goes like this. Kevin and um, what a what a beautiful sentiment actually to ask for permission and when you say the waters of course water stands for emotions and we so often don't ask for permissions to be part of of an emotional journey um, if we are allowed to enter and to to bring forth kindness and, and service so lots of of metaphors lots of literal wisdom but also lots of metaphors for life itself. And I really think that is what island states who are not have developed over, with the speed of mainland cultures and societies, um, that deeply rooted connection to nature and, and um, reverence to something bigger than us, sky and ocean, is really what, what makes Hawaiian culture in this case so special. Wonderful to have you on the show. And um, I do want to share the breath of life with you one more time. Aloha. Are you going back to the beach right now? Yep. <laughs> Another day in Maui. Is there a Hawaiian goodbye that you can offer? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So in Hawaii, we always, we never say goodbye. We always end by saying ahuiho. Ahuiho means until we meet again, never goodbye, yeah? So, ahuiho, and I look forward to uh, the next time we can see each other. I'd love to take you out surfing with Oha Surf School and out on the canoe with Hawaiian Outrigger Experience. 
Fantastic. Thank you so much, Kevin. Pleasure to have you on the show today. Mahalo. Thanks for all your work. Mahalo. See you soon. Bye-bye. And that's Kevin Hoke, who joined us today from Maui, from the southwest beach of Wailea. Kevin Hoke is the CEO and president of Hawaiian Outrigger Experience and Hawaiian Ocean Sports. That's HawaiianOutriggerExperience.com, HawaiianOceanSports.com, and also the owner of Beach Club Maui. Born in 1966, he's really a representative of Hawaiian culture, having lived several years, almost two decades, on the mainland and then returned to Maui to start his business there, but really just using that as the foundation to being an exemplary representative of Hawaiian culture and Hawaiian wisdom. Kevin Hoke, again, look him up. If you go to Maui, it's worth the experience, absolutely. And that's our show today on Island Wisdom, Lessons from Hawaiian Culture. This is An Organic Conversation. I am Helge Helberg, and we'll take a quick break. We'll be back with more. Stay tuned. We're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. And our topic in this hour was Island Wisdom, Lessons from Hawaiian Culture. Switching gears now. Here's the update from the world of healthy, organic fruits and vegetables. Here is what's in season. And it's the voice of the San Francisco Produce Market, Mr. Organic, on the line. Hello, Helga. <laughs> hey, Earl. <laughs> Thanks for making time. And um, yeah, wow, we talked about stone fruit last week, and you were saying that every day now, June, berry-focused and still like local domestic, really local, was still waiting to come in. It's now coming in on a daily basis. What's yeah. the newest item this week? I reported on a grower down in the Santa Barbara area. Uh, Elwood Farm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, his name was Jack. And oh, yeah, you, you visited that farm in March. We had you on the show, and you were just down there. Yeah, we. I think uh, at that point, he had a uh, he had a production of a, sno- a, sa- a snap piece coming in, and so we revisited Jack, and uh, at that time, he was telling me what his plans were, and, and yeah, he's, he's followed through on those plans, and he's, uh, he's put in a, how, how many, you know, it's about five or six acres, of heirloom tomatoes hmm. and for him this is very exciting he's he's never grown that that much acreage even though it doesn't sound like very many and he's never grown the different varieties that he's doing um, a lot of this was uh, us uh, supporting him telling him you know we definitely have an outlet for this and that he and he also likes to grow it and also where he is it's a good area uh, in, in, to produce, there's a history there of producing tomatoes. 
Well, and tomatoes are really prolific, right? So even on a relatively small acreage, that's actually not that small, but that's a lot of tomatoes. It absolutely is. And, uh, and depending upon the weather, the, you know, the production can, can, really, can really get crazy. You know, they can swing hard either uh-huh. way, yeah. meaning they can be a huge production or you can have a lower production. So you really have to be ready. Um, you know, with some interesting things about what Jack did this year, he, um, he has property that does have hillsides. And he was, uh, what he wanted to do was to, on one of his frost-free hillsides, he wanted to get an early crop in. And, and that, you know, getting inside the mind of a grower is, you know, how, he, how can he, what's, what is the strategy that he's putting forth and how he's managing his land. And when he can get an extra crop in, whether it's the beginning of the year or at the end of the year, that can make a difference between whether, you know, he reaps a financial benefit or not. I mean, in other words... Yeah, makes or really breaks makes the farm. It. That's right. Yeah. So so this year he did not go in that early because because there was a lot of forecasting back in, the, in January and February about El Nino, and he wasn't sure quite how that was going to play out. In retrospect, he could have gone in and planted there and gotten an early crop. So now that he knows that, you know, he's going to be looking very closely at almanacs and talking to other growers and getting forecasts is what it looks like next year. If he can get that early um, planting in, he will, in fact, have heirlooms, local heirlooms, if you will, by the end of May, which would be you know, fantastic. Well, it, it's an interesting story because people, you know, when we when we look at produce in the retail aisle, we often don't recognize the entire story and the risks and the considerations that went into producing that crop. So for for a smaller beginning farmer like Jack, you know, having one crop more, making or breaking the farm, if you do that three, four years in a row, that can create either you know some some kind of stability or real hardship if you didn't hit it right and it's yeah. interesting that that story is never told right you you just see produce yeah. we're used to it we don't even really pay attention to the farm name often depending on your grocery stores there there are some now through your education that really emphasize the farm again and the farmer and make it a make it a story really tell the story of the land and the history and the farmer's family and And when we do that, wow, it's a daily risk-taking. It's basically really just farming is, is risk mitigation, right? They, they <laughs> constantly deal with weather, seasons, pest pressures. Uh, it's all organic. So, you know, trying to manage what is all, almost unmanageable and trying to predict what is certainly unpredictable is, seems like it's such a bargain when we then get an amazing piece of produce for, you know, a couple bucks. Oh, uh, you know, I, I absolutely agree with you. That that is precisely it. Uh, you know, the growers, what many of them are are looking to achieve is growing on the shoulders of the season, which means either early in the season mm-hmm. or late in the season, because that is when they top they dollar, have yeah, best opportunity to get top dollar because there's less less production because they're the ones that sure. you know made the risk and it came in for them, and so they can get the top dollar. Uh, on both ends, or if there's a failure, then you're rolling the dice on that too. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe a frost came, you know, two weeks after you put the transplants in, or maybe the, you know, heavy rains came two weeks in a row. And those, you know, so by following, you know, the histories 
uh, of of that geographical place, talking to sure. uh, you know, looking at forecasts and talking and just knowing your land. That's why these last couple of years, five years, ten years, have been so difficult because it is outside of forecasting. Yeah. And to think that you can have five years running of still no rain, still no rain, and people putting in the bet, putting in the risk, oh, sure. this year we're going to get it. So it's a great story. Uh, it is. It affects us in ways we have no idea. And these uh, small farmers yeah. are really the backbone of the organic and, and his, of course, historically of the agriculture sure. trade itself. Well, important to remember, really great reminder, thank you, for, for all of us as consumers that if we support organic and small farms, the, the risk and hardship those people take on to bring us our food that we then get to enjoy, it's an, it's an honor to support that. And, you know, I'm not saying price doesn't matter, but wow, the, the quality f that is being produced out of that risk and, and we get to honor that, it's just important to hold that and, and really respect that. Yes. Yeah. Right. Couldn't say it better. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying to give the impression that all organic farms are small. No. And they're all family farms. Sure. Not at all. You know, we couldn't. We couldn't fill the the, yeah. the need and the demand that's there. But there are. You know, I've I've made such great relationships with so many small growers that they're out there and they're all over the country, in, in all these great geographical pockets. You have uh, sure. family farms living on the farm having having this this great adventure and we get the benefit from it yeah and we need them all but it's it's just important you know your farmer know where your food comes from really to a certain story level um and then you you're a part of the production you're co-creating right they they need us as consumers and they need us to know their story um just as we need to know the story it's just a really good yeah. cycle yeah uh, thank you yes yeah, keep on creating that dialogue with the produce department <laughs> yes keep asking those questions and go to Earl's website that's earlsorganic.com uh, all those farmer stories and of course the produce items of the week of what's rolling in and what's the best and how to pick it and choose it on earlsorganic.com uh, and that is Earl Herrick the founder of Earl's Organic thanks so much for making time Earl we'll okay. have you back next week great talking to you pleasure you, take care bye later And that was today's edition of An Organic Conversation, The Hope of Young Farmers and the Reverence of Island States, Island Wisdom, Lessons from Hawaiian Culture, our topic in this hour. And yes, how beautiful the idea of giving blessings and returning to a, a much deeper reverence for nature, doing good in the world, being of service, mm -hmm. kindness, and asking for permission if we are allowed to enter or if we're allowed to do certain things in in this world with other people on this planet. Just a deep form of respect. Mahalo again to Kevin, our guest today, and mahalo to Earl Herrick for what's in season and all the work that all these great people are doing every day. And mahalo to you, our listeners. This is an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be back with another episode next week. See you then.
And that was this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. Thank you so much for listening. A big thank you also to our associate producer, Kristen Ponger. An Organic Conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. Equal Exchange, a worker-owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee, tea, chocolate, bananas, and avocados. More on Equal Exchange at equalexchange.coop. And Utterly, offering beautiful and fun clothing for boys and girls that is made entirely from the unused fabric of prominent apparel manufacturers. Every garment reduces our eco-footprint by preventing this fabric from reaching the waste stream. Utterly, making sustainability fashionable and fashion sustainable. For more information, utterly.co. Also, Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business. Are you a chef? have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce, anyone can buy directly from Earl's Organic at wholesale prices. The website is earlsorganic.com. And Fry Vineyards, America's first certified organic winery, producing organic and certified biodynamic wine without synthetic sulfites or other preservatives. Family-owned and operated since 1980. Fry Vineyards, Mendocino County award-winning wines. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. Lastly, thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to anorganicconversation.com or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so you'll never miss an episode. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, find us on Facebook and Instagram at An Organic Conversation and on Twitter at Talk Organic. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be back with another great episode right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then.